0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Recording this just after the latest Tory rebellion turned into a non-rebellion in the House of Commons over this somewhat Monty Python-esque meaningful vote, as if um, a vote could be meaningless on the final deal, one of the biggest uh, moments in British political history since uh, 1945. But even though it's uh, been somewhat on the silly side in in many respects, once again the Tory rebel- rebels have not rebelled. And you do wonder quite what it will take for Tory rebels to rebel in any significant way if they defeated the government on the meaningful vote to have one last year. Uh, but since then, Theresa May has won all the votes, and I'm told one of the things she is most preoccupied about is winning votes, that she fears a defeat that will undermine her in a domestic context and in the context of the EU negotiations. So she twists and turns to win these votes, but she has won them all, except for one. And she hasn't had to threaten a vote of confidence or anything like that. So there she is, doggedly continuing. But I think in a way, more revealing this week about her fragility has been that announcement on the NHS spending. If it had been framed properly and effectively, and framing a policy and an argument is one of the necessary qualities in a leader... This could have been a moment of some excitement for Theresa May and she obviously hoped it would be, which is why she announced it without any of the funding in place. She needed a good moment, but she messed it up on many different levels, which is interesting, I think, because with Brexit, I kind of understand how she staggers hour by hour, day by day with her opaque policy uh, clung to her like a shield all this banality about what we need now is strong leadership which you get from some newspaper leader articles or boris johnson saying if only we had trump leading this is, is nonsense you could have the strongest leader in the world but if the context is fragile to the point of impossible they become weak And so Brexit makes Theresa May weak. She's made some terrible mistakes early on, actually, when she was in a much stronger position, triggering Article 50 without any clarity of the way ahead, accepting Nick Timothy's advice and a view on Brexit at the very beginning, outlining red lines that defined a Brexit that would be a very hard Brexit. And, you know, big mistakes early on. But at this point... As the negotiation begins in earnest with the European Union, the missing element of all this, any leader from Trump, which is a sort of slightly mad image, to any of the potential successors to her would be immediately in a weak position. Because the triggering of Article 50 was not really triggering a negotiation as such. It was passing on to the European Union the responsibility of facilitating the exit of one member. That was much more the dynamic that she was triggering. And yet, of course, in the UK, it was presented as an act of steely Margaret Thatcher-like assertion. And it never was. And the idea that then a sort of game of poker would be played with Britain playing loads of aces left, right and centre misreads wholly the way the Article 50 process is meant to work. But anyway, she's in an impossible position on Brexit but keeps on winning votes in the House of Commons. On the NHS, if she was... This is where Nick Timothy was good for her, her special advisor... He framed arguments, so he wrote that opening speech outside Number 10 when she became Prime Minister, which was quite a radical, daring, visionary opening statement outside Number 10, mentioning uh, in a sort of Ed Miliband-esque way the flaws of markets, that there was a housing deficit as well as a budget deficit and so on. But this NHS framing has been really poor and has kind of rebounded On her. I mean, most obviously, pretending there would be a Brexit dividend made the funding issue central rather than the framing issue, which she could have made. Here is a Conservative government taking the future of the NHS deadly seriously and recognising that resources are a big part of that recognition instead she couldn't really pull it off when interviewed by Andrew Ma on Sunday she looked transparently tortured as she made the assertion about the Brexit dividend because unlike most of our prime ministers she's not an actress Uh, Margaret Thatcher was an actress she was nowhere near as screechingly self-confident as she appeared to be Tony Blair, at his peak, could act Hamlet and Macbeth simultaneously. And David Cameron copied Tony Blair as an act of impersonation. They were all fascinated by their place on the stage at any given time. And all of them, in different ways, would have framed an argument around the investment programme that she proposes in a way that superficially, at least, would have been compelling – And I don't say that in a derogatory way. I think it is an important element of leadership to make the best out of whatever you're trying to do. But she looked rather anguished, Theresa May, when um, she talked about this Brexit dividend on Sunday. She looked more confident at Prime Minister's questions because Jeremy Corbyn, I don't quite know what Jeremy Corbyn was trying to do at Prime Minister's Questions in exposing the Brexit dividend, not least because he himself had proposed ways of spending it. But he could have been much more devastating by asking her to explain when the spending pledge comes into effect next year, what form the dividend would take then, and get her onto a specific place where she would not have been able to answer. But instead, she was able to exchange generalities with him and emerge unscathed. But on Sunday, and in the framing in the days that followed, they were all over the place. And the funding, and or the lack of it, became the issue. And these woolly, clunky words that uh, we'll all have to pay a bit more, along with this epic Brexit dividend, lacked credibility and clarity. And at times, the art of government is to appear clear when you're not, um, which is most of the time. And in fairness to me, when Tony Blair announced that huge increase in NHS spending under his leadership. He did it on the sofa of David Frost one Sunday morning, and his chancellor didn't even know about it. So compared with that, this was a model of early clarity. But Blair and Brown had the artistry at that point in their strained partnership to turn something that was made off the cuff almost, historic pledge to get British spending up to the EU average on health. They turned it into a mission of purpose and momentum, and Brown very cleverly framed the case for a tax rise first, and then came up with the specific policy in one of his budgets, uh, I think it was in 2002, and it was his most popular budget. Opinion polls rated it incredibly highly to the relief and surprise of number 10, even though they had triggered the whole sequence by making the pledge. So that was chaotic, but uh, the chaos was to some extent disguised by artistry. And artistry, politics is partly an art form. And she can't do it because she's not an actress, but also the clunkiness of the announcement, the crudity of the funding explanations, I think exposes a wider fragility. When a government or a prime minister is desperate to please, and they announce a policy aiming to please... When it's done in the context of desperation, it usually goes wrong. And that, I think, is more worrying for Theresa May and more vividly highlighted her fragility than the Brexit saga, even if it's the Brexit saga that is making her fragile. But as I say, I can tell you they had a leadership contest tomorrow and Ruth Davidson was flown down from Edinburgh to take over or Michael Gove took over or David Davis the fragility over Brexit would be as great because they are embarking on an almost impossible task and although the rebels on the whole fail to rebel the big moments of this saga are still to come I know we're always getting excited about apparent Climactics in this Brexit never ending sequence, and it doesn't seem to happen ever. There will be some. It will be a really interesting moment in July when there is a vote on a or the customs union. How she buys the rebels off, I think she will work assiduously to try and do so, is at the moment a mystery. But given that she's bought them off so far, maybe she's going to come up with something again. And indeed, on one level, she already has, because the whole statement about a backstop deal, if the Northern Ireland border issue isn't settled in the actual deal for uh, next March, gives all kinds of wriggle room about how long we will be obliged to stay in the customs union. The Irish question hovers over all of this. Uh, There is still no solution to the border question if the UK leaves the single market and the customs union and yet it is pledged to secure that soft border as is the European Union it's uh, you know it, but it's easy to agree on the end game the objectives the means remain wholly unresolved Another issue that remains unresolved, much more dramatic and significant, uh, significant is who's going to chair BBC One's Question Time. It's a really interesting Question Time, and the focus, inevitably, is a great soap opera, who's going to chair it. And David Dimbleby is a brilliant presenter. He's a natural television performer. He looks as if he's having a conversation with you when people are shouting into his earpiece and all the rest of it. But in a way, it's an irrelevant question, because... Question time has been unwatchable since they introduced a fifth panellist. I don't know who made that decision, but it would have been someone who doesn't understand the appeal of programmes like that. Question time at its best when it had four panellists would be sometimes the surprising development of arguments and the dynamic between the panellists because the panellists had some time to breathe and in that space, interesting agreement sometimes and differences surfaced. But when you've got five panellists, no one gets more than about two minutes per debating theme and once the audience has been brought in all now whipped up to scream at the panel you get nowhere and when you see the panel you can script every element of the program in advance because it's been designed to create a kind of furore in a really obvious clunky way and it's really interesting Melanie Phillips wrote an article this week about how she's been a regular panelist because they like her because they think she's going to be provocative and all the rest of it and she said she was put on once with George Galloway and they found that on a couple of issues they agreed and anyway they were polite with each other and the editor came up at the end and expressed disappointed bewilderment that they didn't have blazing rows But I'd have liked to have seen that programme because, of course, it's much more interesting when the unexpected happens, when people you expect to disagree actually get on. But that's not the way they think, and therefore it's become so predictable you don't have to watch it. And the way the audience is whipped up as well in a sort of tabloid fever is an, an element of the unwatchability. So the key to question time, if they want to keep it on, is to put the panel back to four, I think people, viewers, in a way that uh, some at the BBC, you, you can't generalise because the BBC is vast and there are so many different individuals and so many layers of accountability, it's very hard to measure who is responsible for what. But giving space to allow items or people to breathe, I think, is the key. I mean, News24, you've got 24 hours to play for. Uh, not everything has to be two minutes long. One of the great geniuses of television, Bruce Forsyth, is the model for all of this. And uh, when a bunch of executives at the BBC suggested he hosted the Generation Game in the 1970s, where I think he was a comic genius on that programme, they showed him the original for the Generation Game, which came from Holland, and Bruce Forsyth watched it, and it had those games, you know, and then someone had to remember all those toys and all the rest of it on a conveyor belt at the end. And Bruce Forsyth watched it with some executives, and he turned around and said, I want to do it, but I need an hour, because he recognised the key to the success of his version would be the interplay with the guests and the audience, which needed time to develop. And of course, that's what made it so brilliant. I can remember the gorgeous interchanges with those guests i sometimes watch old programs on youtube to have a laugh but he had the space and he negotiated the space and that's what made it so compelling and brought about one of his many revivals Uh, he dominated saturday night broadcasting in the 1970s uh, and deservedly so but that was the key if it had all been crammed into a shorter duration, it wouldn't have worked. And sometimes, you know, the kind of at the BBC, they have endless reviews of how to make politics interesting, how to do this, how to do that, endless kind of meetings. Sometimes it's very simple. Let an item breathe. Let an individual have space. And on question time, the opposite applied in recent years, and um, I, I've been really interested on Twitter how many people have said it's become unwatchable. And the also this choice for obvious controversy makes it really boring, because you know in advance what the controversy is going to be. So, anyway, I don't know how I got onto that. Now, one thing that will give people the chance to breathe is the Politics Festival, uh, which is on at King's Place this weekend. I've mentioned it before on the uh, podcast, but I hope some of you can come along to it. It's going to be a great Glastonbury festival for political fans. Uh, John Major's opening it, and he'll have some interesting things to say about Brexit. Keir Starmer's coming along now, uh, late edition. He's coming along on Saturday. Chuck there on Friday. Jeremy Hunt, who was, of course, instrumental in the NHS decision and I think deserves credit for getting the money because he was facing a chancellor, Philip Hammond, who is not one of life's public spenders. And so even though the money is not enough, they are going to have to find ways of getting it. They will get there. They're going to have to, having made such a song and dance about the the total. And, and Jeremy Hunt has pushed for it. Anyway, he's going to be there on the Friday night and, and many others. Ed Miliband's doing his podcast live at the festival so are jackie smith and ian dale their their double act um, which is a great podcast they're doing it live at the festival michael crick will be talking about his life as a political journalist and there are some very interesting themes to explore there in michael's kind of choice of style as a political journalist kirsty lang will be talking with him it's going to be great and i say hope to see some of you there and also i should mention that i'm live at the edinburgh festival different show every day in which the audience takes control in brexit britain so if you're going to the edinburgh festival i hope to see you there. Thanks so much for listening today and do subscribe and um, see you next week. Thank you.